0: Again, speaking about the text we've chosen this morning, I want to say three things. First of all, thank you for the invitation to be here, to have fellowship with so many friends over the years that we've made, and to identify in some way with your pastor, in whose theological education I had a little part. When I think of Peter Granger, I always remember Peter Ustinov telling how at school someone said that, this boy shows creativity, and originality, which must be curbed at all costs. (laughs) I do thank God that in many ways um, the Lord has enhanced the gifts he'd already given to Peter and God has blessed his ministry over the years. And I give thanks to God uh, for being here in that sense. Secondly, I want to bring you uh, greetings from uh, my own congregation uh, I've retired, but I'm the worst member of a Baptist church, uh, the Hairstains congregation of Kirkintilloch Baptist Church, where I'm a member. And uh, I was preaching there last Sunday, but that was one of my few appearances over the, year, uh, over the year. But they would want me to bring greetings to you. And thirdly, let's pray together. Let us pray. Oh Lord, again, we pause in your presence to recognize that spiritual things, are spiritually discerned, and we pray that your mighty Holy Spirit, who is the true author of Scripture, may be the interpreter of its meaning to each one of our hearts and lives and needs this day, for your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you. Our hearts go out to the Londoners and to the Egyptians. Today, during the past few weeks, we've realised something of the depths of depravity of the human heart and the brutal damage sin can cause. We've also realised how frail and vulnerable our lives are. Four young men drove a city, if not to its knees, at least to its feet, walking. And what happened in London can happen anywhere. Over 50 people left home on the 7th of July, and their violent, horrible deaths shook Britain to its foundations. What motivated the bombers? That's one of the big questions we're all thinking about. They were young men, 19 to 30 was the age bracket given. Being part of British society with all our freedoms wasn't enough. Being included in our educational system wasn't enough. Being given responsibility of working with children in a classroom Mentoring in a school situation wasn't enough. Being father of a child and custodian of a family wasn't enough. Being a regular, involved Muslim wasn't enough. What motivated them? They must have thought that their lives offered in that sacrifice would somehow achieve something. There must have been. Anger and hatred and alienation and bitterness all compounded in what these young men did. And this morning, I want to talk about a different kind of sacrifice. A sacrifice not motivated out of bitterness, hatred, alienation. But a sacrifice motivated by love. Thank you very much. Some of us are familiar with a painting of Christ in the workshop at Nazareth being a carpenter beside Joseph. And in the the painting there's a, a slanted window with the sun streaming through and the frame of the window is in the shape of a cross and the cross superimposes itself on the young figure in the workshop. The cross above him. Later on in his life, the cross was within him. He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, it says in the Gospels. There to offer himself on the cross. The cross above, the cross within. So the the central feature of Christianity is a cross. It's not the teaching of Jesus that's the central feature. It's the death of Jesus. It's not the Sermon on the Mount that saves us, but the cross on the hill. The cross, not the chalkboard, is at the heart of Christianity. And this morning, we look at a text. If you have your Bible with you, and turn to 1 Peter 3.18, here is our text for the short time that we have. A principal told his students, a training for ministry, speak about Jesus. And speak about half an hour. (laughs) So that's what we'll try to do today. Here's the text. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And the first thing we look at this morning is the value of Christ's death. This death. As a sacrifice and an expression of his love, we'll look at the value of it. First of all, the fact of it. Christ died. That's a fact. He died. Not only a fact attested in the four Gospels, but a fact attested outwith the New Testament evidence entirely. Because Tacitus, the father-in-law of Julius Agricola, the governor of Britain, in his annals of the Roman people, tells how during the procuratorship of Pontius Pilate, Um, one Crestus was crucified outside Jerusalem Suetonius also mentions the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in in his writings so this is a fact Christ died it's as well attested as the death of any great hero of history Um, the fact of it the fruit of it it's a death for sin you see what it says in the text For Christ died for sins. And that marks out his death from all the other deaths in history. Crucifixion was a well-known phenomenon in the Roman Empire. It was a death for criminals. A humiliating, painful death. But when we say Christ died, we're stating a fact. When we say Christ died for sins, we're giving a valuation of the fact which is repeated, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is passing on the deposit which he has heard from other folk to the ongoing, believing community of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells them how the things he's heard, he's passed on to them, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, And the fruit of it. So this death was a different death. It wasn't a death out of hatred and bitterness and Uh, alienation it was a death that would deal with the problem of sin which had accumulated over the centuries Augustine says only man owed the debt only God could pay the debt so in order that the, the, the payment could be made for the debt of our sins God had to become a man and that's what happened in the incarnation, in the birth of the Lord Jesus. And he came to die for sin. He summarized his mission in Luke 19 and 10 in words of one syllable. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And the fruit of his death is that modern people too might know the deliverance and rescue and cleansing and value that God places On his dealing with each of our lives in the matter of our sins, past, present, and future. The fact of it, the fruit of it, the finality of it. Peter says here, For Christ died for sins once for all. Greek word is hapax. It occurs quite a lot in the letter to the Hebrews. Sometimes compounded with a preposition to strengthen and intensify the meaning, epapax, definitely once for all. I was brought up in poor circumstances. The comedian Les Dawson said his family was so poor that they thought that cutlery was (laughs) jewellery. But we were even worse than that (laughs) because the cottage we lived in was attached to a piggery. My father got the cottage rent free in exchange for feeding his best friend's pigs at the weekend. And our cutlery came out of the pig swill. And we did not think it was jewellery at all. We saw the names on it. Lewis's, (laughs) Woolworth's, Miss Cranston's Tea Rooms, and things like that. And as a child, I only ever had one holiday. And that was when my granny's lodger Got married and went on honeymoon. They took me with them <laughs> when I was seven years old. They they chose as their honeymoon spot that exotic resort on the west coast of Scotland, Girvan, a sun-kissed paradise if ever I saw one. Um, <clears throat> and I also discovered during this honeymoon, I seemed to have a lot of time to myself. <laughs> And I used to go and see the paddling pools with the red water in them and down by the, the front at uh, Girvan there was a, a, a draft set uh, laid out in concrete on the front with big draftsmen made out of concrete with steel hooks coming out of the, the individual draftsmen and each of the men playing the drafts and puffing at their pipes had a and some sort of tool for lifting these Have you got the picture? Right. Okay. (laughs) So I was watching them playing drafts, and sometimes one man would nod to the other and say, okay, Jimmy, you win. Of course, everyone on the west coast of Scotland, as you know, every Tom, Dick, or Harry is called Jimmy. (laughs) Um, So you could interrupt the game and say, wait a minute, you have six draftsmen left on the board. And he would look at you with a kind of subdued tolerance and say, that move finished the game. And you know, in the matter of our salvation, there was one move made, and that move was the climax of the planning of God in the sending of his Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died on that cross. This man, having made one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the Old Testament sanctuary, the tabernacle, the tent shrine in the desert, um, it's interesting to study all the furniture. But there weren't any chairs in the tabernacle. Because a priest's work, like a woman's work, was never done. He was always busy. But this great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his one sacrifice for sin forever, he dealt with the problem of sin in the plan and economy of God and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The finality of his death. Christ died for sins once for all. So much for the value of his death. Thank you. The virtue of his death uh, consists of two things. First of all, he intervenes for us. He has stepped in and died in our place. In the book Miracle in the River Kwai, the writer tells how during the Second World War, uh, a number of men were involved in the construction of what was called the Death Railway. And a lot of them died as a result of this. And he tells the story of how one detachment, I think there were 20 in it, who were supervised by a a sergeant of the enemy army, um, came in one day and checked in their shovels. And when they counted the shovels, there was one shot. And he lined them up and he conveyed the message to them that if the person... Uh, who had stolen the shovel did uh, not step forward he would beat them all to death and he had a pick shaft and regularly beat them of course they were powerless to resist they had dysentery, beriberi, dengue fever all sorts of malaria and various diseases and they stood in the line the threat was repeated and a man stepped forward and was beaten to death in front of his comrades, after which they counted the shovels, and there were twenty. And it slowly dawned in the minds of the other men that this man must have known he hadn't stolen the shovel, but he had made up his mind that perhaps if he died, the rest would be spared. And you know, that's a, a pale picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He has intervened for us. He has stepped forward. He has taken our place. Peter says he bore our sins in his own body to the tree. Um, He has suffered once for all for us. The Apostle Paul could never get over it. In Galatians he says, he loved me and gave himself for me. He intervenes. Us. And that's the great message of Christ's sacrifice. His sacrifice of love was a sacrifice dedicated to intervening for you and for me. And the second part of this is that he introduces us. The text says, The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ intervening in our place, we are unrighteous people and he is a righteous person. We do not match up to the standard of a holy God, but he did. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, to bring us to God, to introduce us to God in a new and personal way. One of my duties as Vice President of the Baptist Union of Scotland was to represent the Baptist Union of Churches at other denominational gatherings, one of which was the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in Edinburgh. And I had quite an unhappy time there, I won't go into detail this morning fully, but I was invited very kindly to the moderator's reception, which was held in a beautiful building. I just remember the thick velvet carpet as I mounted the staircase, and on the landing there was a, a brass ensemble playing uh, selections from Gilbert and Sullivan. And I went into the room, and they were all standing around there, you know, with uh, lavino in this hand, and these, you know, these wee sandwiches the issue. functions like this which are meant to tantalise you you don't know whether to eat it in one bite which would seem very rude or to eat it in two bites which would seem a bit silly Uh, and (laughs) it was like that song Some Enchanted Evening are you familiar with that song from the shows and it says um, across a crowded room well I looked across the crowded room (laughs) and I saw the Reverend Dr. Fergus MacDonald of the Bible Society, and he looked at me, <laughs> and I looked at him, and we went like, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> and then somebody came up and said to me, would you like to meet the moderator, George? Come on and in, I'll introduce you to the moderator. So he took me up. And he said, this man hacks his way around golf courses the same as yourself, moderator. And it was very good because the night was suddenly transformed by the fact that I had met the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Um, And you know, the glorious thing about the work of Christ on our behalf in love and sacrifice is that he introduces us not to the moderator. He only lasted for a year, that moderator. <laughs> um, he introduces us to God. Isn't that wonderful? That when you know God in Christ, every day when you open your eyes in his mercy, you can look up into his face and say, Abba. Dear Father. You don't even need teeth to say it. Abba. Dear Father, God has become our Father in a special sense through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so, the virtue of his death lies in the fact that he intervenes for us. He steps forward and takes our place. He is our substitute. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's a, a substitutionary preposition there. On behalf of the unrighteous. Sometimes in wartime or periods of national service young soldiers were not very good at writing letters and they used to get one of their friends to write to their girlfriend sometimes would you write letters to my so this fella, who'd never met this girl was writing love letters to her on behalf of his friend and it felt out of place but you know this was not out of place Christ died the righteous On behalf of the unrighteous, he took our place to introduce us to God. What a wonderful saviour is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk now, thirdly, about the victory in his death. I realise that the general consensus in the world around us is that the death of Jesus was... An unfortunate circumstance, some folk would say. And folk come to different conclusions about the Lord Jesus as they try to evaluate his death. Either he was sad, a sad figure, suffered from delusions of grandeur and died a a horrible death, um, undeservingly, of course. A sad figure, a bad figure, who misled the people, who deceived them, who duped them into thinking that he would bring um, the leadership of God to bear in a very difficult situation where the people were overtaxed. He was either sad or bad or mad. Um, He was a megalomaniac who thought he was God and suffered a cruel, untimely end. Or else the fourth conclusion you can come to about him is that he was God. He was exactly who he claimed to be. He never needed to apologize. He never needed to uh, retract any statement he ever made. He lived a perfect life and then in the prime of his young manhood offered himself without spot to God on the cross in sacrificial love. The victory in his death. We'll see it in a few aspects. First of all, it was vindication. Vindication. Um, because during his earthly life, it tells us, <coughs> the verdict of the writer to the Hebrews is, he suffered contradiction of sinners against himself. Contradiction of sinners against himself. And, what happened is that when God raised his son, the Lord Jesus, from the dead, he vindicated all that Jesus was. And he contradicted all those who had contradicted the Lord Jesus in his earthly life. There was a reversal of verdicts in the death of Christ. And I'll, I think if we're able to, we'll look at evidence from just one gospel um, about this. <clears throat> uh, that gospel be John's gospel. Thank you. Uh, here's the first one. They said he didn't come down from heaven. He did. <laughs> here's the second one. They said he deceived the people. He didn't. Which of you convinces me of sin? He could say to the crowd on one occasion and nobody could answer him. He always spoke the truth. He he didn't deceive the people. Thirdly, they said he was demon-possessed. They told them that he cast out devils by the prince of the devils, um, Beelzebub. And he says, if I, by the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the rule of God, the kingdom of God, has come among you. Then they said he was a sinner. In the incident of the man born blind who was healed by the Lord Jesus twice, Um, the enemies of Christ said he was a sinner. He wasn't. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, the purest man who ever lived. You know, H.R. McIntosh makes a case that the Lord Jesus Christ went through exquisite torture in his temptations throughout his earthly life. Because unlike us, who's Sensitivities are blunted and damaged through sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was supremely sensitive and aware of the context of sin in which he lived. And so to him, H.R. McIntosh says, temptation came with special power. And he resisted it throughout his earthly life. He wasn't a sinner. And lastly, in John's Gospel, 10.33, his claim to be God was blasphemy. It wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't. He said to Philip, Have you been so long with me, Philip, and yet you haven't known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. P.T. Forsyth says, In Christ we do not merely hear about God. We meet him. He did not only come to reveal God, he is God in revelation. His claim was not blasphemy. And in his death and in his resurrection, in the New Testament preaching of the cross, they go together. He is vindicated by God raising him from the dead. He was delivered up for our offenses, Paul said, and raised for our justification. And so we see something of vindication as part of the victory. Second thing is identification. In his death, the Lord Jesus Christ identified with sinners. This is obvious from the earliest part of his ministry when he submitted to baptism in the River Jordan. He was numbered with the transgressors although he was not a transgressor He identified with them. And in his resurrection power, he comes to each one of us, applies the value and virtue of his death and sacrifice to each of our lives. And he becomes, Paul says, the firstborn of a great brotherhood throughout the whole wide earth. We're part of the family of God. And so there's vindication in his death, there's identification. That all of us, wherever we go in the world, we can meet up with people who are part of God's family and there is the resonance of mutual love in the heart response of one Christian to another, no matter what colour or what country we have or come from. And thirdly, there's resurrection. That's the third part of the victory that Christ has bought for us through his sacrifice he rose and we shall rise what a wonderful saviour one of the members of this church used to be a man called Peter Barber correct? Peter Barber was a member of this church, Peter Barber's aunt was one of the members of Inverness Baptist Church J. Sutherland a femme formidable not a lady to be trifled with <laughs> And Jay, a lovely Christian who served God throughout her life without losing her cutting edge, (laughs) Um, she was dying of cancer and her consultant was plucking up courage to tell her she was now moving into the final stages of um, her approach to death. And she said, come on doctor, tell me, tell me. I'm ready to go to be with Jesus. And he said to her, Oh, do you have a strong faith, Mrs. Sutherland? And she said, no, but I have a strong God. And that's what we have this morning. A strong and gracious God who has sent us a saviour, who has died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God that we might appropriate the victory that he has won for us through his death. What can we do about all that? What can I do? Well, we can do two things. The first thing seems fairly obvious, but it's not really. First of all, we need to admit our need. It's as simple as ABC. We have to admit our need of God. Before the cross of the Redeemer, where is our pride? Augustine said, Here is a great mystery, a proud man. Here is a great mercy, a humble God. And before God, our first task is to admit our need of this Saviour. Secondly, we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And quite often in the New Testament, the verb to believe is compounded with a preposition of motion. We either believe upon Christ, we believe into Christ, towards Christ. We move from where we are to where He is and give our lives to Him. To believe in Jesus. Not simply that He died for the whole world, but that He died for you individually. As if you were the only person in the world, He would still have come and died for you. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. And thirdly, that we spend our lives confessing him before others, no matter what it costs. Let us pray together.